Welcome to the Postpartum Wow, the show where moms share their raw, unfiltered postpartum moments. I'm your host, Sarah Allen, and I'm a first-time mom who was completely broadsided by postpartum depression and anxiety. I'm here to show the not-so-pretty side of becoming a parent, and I hope you hear something that resonates with you because, let's be honest, the postpartum experience is nothing like we imagined. But along with the struggles come glimpses of hope. So buckle up and hold on tight, and let's get to it. Hello again, friends. Uh, So we are releasing part two of Sarah M's story this week instead of next week. So going a little off schedule, but I wanted to release it while uh, part one of her story was fresh on everybody's mind. So uh, as always, please remember that if you are currently in the throes of postpartum depression, anxiety, or infant loss, uh, please be aware that uh, a trigger warning is included. Uh, because this episode deals with both of those topics. So without further ado, this is part two of Sarah M's story. And then, okay, got pregnant about a year later, not quite a year later. And then uh, going along with that pregnancy, fine. and felt like, okay, we're going to do the same thing again. We're good. And then right before um, we found out that we had been trying to move for a while, just because my husband's job had come to kind of a um, plateau place. And finally, he was offered a job in another state. And we agreed to accept that job. But we had not told anybody quite yet, we were going to tell them um, within the next week. But we just wanted to make sure everything was settled before we did that. And we had been having a very busy summer, because it was summer, it was July, and all the kids were involved in 4-H, and we were start state fair, or county fair, sorry, and all sorts of stuff, all the swimming and stuff, and then um, got home from the county fair, bit of successful day, but I felt good, and I thought, okay, my ankles had been a little bit swollen one day, but put them up, and they're fine, and then I thought, okay, it's been hot, this time I'll take it's been hot, and it's summer, because it was 113 degrees, it was hot. And miserable. And I was eight and a half months pregnant. Um, but this time I stepped out of the van. And when I stepped down, I felt pop, gush. And I went, I think my water just broke. Went inside and I knew something was wrong. And quickly realized it was not my water. Uh, I was bleeding for some reason. And didn't know what was going on. Um, called my husband, told him he needs to come home right away. Called the doctor. The doctor, they couldn't. They said, you need to go to the emergency room. And the midwife said, I need to go to the emergency room. So we went to the local emergency room, which did not deliver babies. Because um, <clears throat> we needed to be seen quickly. As well as the other hospital that had delivered babies about 20 minutes away, no longer was delivering babies. Um, they you know, would have had a little bit more closeness to knowing how to do things. Because my doctor there had delivered babies plenty. But he was no longer delivering babies at the time. So decided to go to the close emergency room got there. They were so poorly prepared, had no clue what to do. They did not even have the emergency skills. They didn't have a doctor available. The nurse practitioner really had almost no experience in this area. Um, The usual ultrasound tech was gone. So they had people who did not even know how to run an ultrasound machine. Um, They were doing their best, but they were not prepared at all for this kind of situation. They quickly life flighted me. um, And even the life flight team really was unprepared for how they were handling this. Because um, they had finally got an IV started on me. My blood pressure was quite high at this point in time. They weren't able to find any um, protein. So they didn't think it was preeclampsia. They didn't know for sure. Um, but 
I actually had to help them get my IV started because <laughs> they couldn't get the IV started. I'm like, look, I'm a nurse and you guys, because I worked with them actually at this point in time. I'm like, look, guys, just go right, just do it right here. And then they were able to get it going. But even in the um, life lighting, I kept telling them, I'm bleeding a lot. You need to make that IV go. You need to let it just open it up. And they're like, no, you're not. And I'm like, I can tell you, I can feel this. And like, no, 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 we're checking. You're fine. When they pulled the gurney out, it like a huge puddle of blood all over because they just were missing it. I don't know how they're missing, but they were missing it. And they didn't listen. They just were not listening. And I'm pretty sure I passed out at some point on the life on the flight, but they were not aware. I think they just thought I was sleeping and I was not. I was passed out. Didn't know what was going on with my baby, of course. Um, got to the other hospital. Totally strange hospital. Didn't know anybody there. They didn't know me from Adam. Um, pulled me into an ultrasound machine, an ultrasound room. I was kind of in and out of it at this point in time. My blood pressure was really high at this point in time, but still no proteins that they could find anywhere. And then I had a seizure. The doctor was doing an ultrasound, and I had a seizure during the ultrasound. And I... I understand now that when they did the ultrasound, they knew that the baby was no longer alive. The baby did not have a heartbeat. Um, and, but I did not know that still, because when I had the seizure, I totally blacked out. Um, the only thing that I do remember then was the doctor saying, I'm not going to lose another one now. And again, I didn't put two and two together till later that knowing that he had lost a couple of babies um, and mamas. Actually, he lost a couple of mamas uh, just within six weeks of me coming in due to preeclampsia, due to eclampsia and preeclampsia. And he did not want to lose another mama right away. So what he meant by now was at the time I saw they were helping him glove up and get up. He was going to start that C-section in that ultrasound room, not even getting to surgery. But um, we were able, and they, I was just, asking them to put me, you know, to knock me out because I was uncomfortable and he was having them give me magnesium, but at a different way than uh, most people do it. I don't know that there's any other doctor in the U.S. who's ever given magnesium this way. I would never recommend doing it. They don't, he wasn't giving it in the drip. He was just bolus pushing it, which is very, very painful. Uh, It just feels like fire is coming out of your nose, out of your mouth, out of your eyes. It just feels like you're just on. So it feels like somebody's lit a huge log stick on fire and just shoved it down your middle. And they're just, everything's on fire. It's so uncomfortable. Um, so I was at begging them to um, go ahead and knock me out. And they said, we can't yet until we're in this, you know, but anyway, they finally did. And still at this point, I did not know what had happened with my baby because I was so in and out of it and just so focused on that. I just, I thought I was dying. I felt like I was dying. I just go so miserable from the magnesium, not from the, what was going on with my um, pregnancy and baby at that point in time, as well as I had lost almost half of my blood by the time we got through all that half of my blood volume. Cause we knew what my hemoglobin was before and it was great. And then after we knew what it was and it was not good. So um, in all of that, they went ahead and had to do a C-section, emergency C-section. So what they didn't tell, what, the doctor, not having any records, all he gets in there, since I was not able to answer, and my husband was not there yet because he was driving um, the 45-minute drive, he got in there. He saw, oh, she has a C-section scar. We'll just follow the C-section scar. Great. Um, started following the C-section scar. Didn't know that the last baby who had been delivered through that was not even two pounds. And this baby was six pounds. 
So he he was trying to deliver a much larger baby through a tiny little C-section scar. In the process, did a lot of stretching of those tissues, which to some degree, some of that was going to happen anyway. But so much so that when um, over the postpartum phase, I was bruised from above my belly button down to my knees, so black and blue that it was hard to even tell like what was what because like it was so miserable. Um, but it was just because he didn't know what he was getting into. It again, I don't blame this doctor. I think he saved my life, even though it was a horrible, horrible experience. I don't know that I would have been able to make it had it not been for the way he handled it. I think he handled it in an old school way that everybody would think is crazy, but it worked because I did make it. Um, Like I said, again, my baby did not. Um, So Andrew was born and um, it was, of course, a very heart-wrenching experience to wake up then and to look at the nurse and say, can you tell me about my baby? And she just turned around and I could tell from the way, you know, of course, and she said, he didn't make it. And for her to have to tell me that, but, um, you know, and then crying, but at the same time, just like, just too exhausted to be able to handle it. Cause by that point in time, my head was so, uh, like I said, had lost half my blood. I was, it was rough with all that. Um, and, um, they had not told my husband where I was. He had come in and they wouldn't show him where I was. Wouldn't tell him what was going on, whatever. Um, maybe someday he'll be on here. I've asked him if he would sometime and he said he'd think about it. Um, (laughs) but for him to have to come in and see me on the, um, surgical table, but not know, did the baby make it? Did she make it? He couldn't even tell if I was alive based off of what he was seeing. Um, and then still just trying to, uh, you know, experience all this. And then when um, I was able to come to, and he was able to be there to hold the baby, even though, you know, he was not living and to try to process all that. But I was still so sick. I couldn't even see the clock in the room because my vision had gone crazy because of the um, seizure that I'd had. And nobody had really explained any of that to me. Yeah, because I had a C-section, they needed me to get me up. And so within 12 hours, they were trying to make me stand up to go to the bathroom, to get up and go to the bathroom. I'm like, I can't. And literally, I passed out the moment they stood me up. They put ammonia back under my nose. Let's do it again. I passed out again. Let's do ammonia back under my nose. And then made me go. And there was not very much... um, Uh, grace, I guess you could say, in the situation. The nurses did not want to do this, but the doctor was like, nope, she needs up because the post-surgical issues, not just because it was a C-section, but he, I think he knew that I needed to get up and get moving because he didn't want me to get a blood clot. Because by then, he had the history that I'd had a blood clot before with Hannah years before, because they were finally getting all my chart pulled together and all this stuff. He had my best interest at heart, but maybe... It could have explained it. I know they could have explained it a lot better. I only remember him coming in and talking to me once after I had Andrew. And then because we told him we were moving again, he said, okay, find a new doctor there. We weren't going to move for almost a month, but yet he's like, yep, yeah, you'll be fine. Uh, you know, and not in an unkind way, but just like, 
there's nothing more I can do for you. Go ahead, go on. Did not check in with me once after I left the hospital. They didn't want to keep me very long because even though I'd had a C-section, they knew that I'd be hearing other babies and that that would be hard for me. And they told me that, and I appreciated that concern. Um, and they knew uh, my mom was able to fly in to come and help. And they knew I would have support because we had a lot of support back at our home by then. Um, and that my husband said, you know, he'd be there to support me. And he of course was, but you know, to be discharged less than two days after a C-section of such an extremely traumatic experience was a little rough to say the least. Um, that this um, birth was the first time that anybody ever said, hey, now we expect that you'll probably have some depression after this. Do you want us to get you some medication? They offered it, but it was kind of like a, they didn't really know how to have that conversation kind of thing. Um, not so much the conversation about postpartum depression, but so much because of the loss, they didn't feel, it was it, awkward, clearly an awkward conversation for them to be having with me, which Again, as a nurse, I get it's an awful conversation, but sometimes you got to have the hard conversations. That's the point that I want to say about this is that those hard conversations are worth it for no matter who you are, whether you are, you know, the new mama, whether you are the support, whether you are the nurse, who, no matter who you are, those hard conversations need to be had because they will be appreciated. So I appreciated that they cared about me. Um, I did not want to go on medication. Um, I knew that. I wanted to feel the hard things for me at that point in time. And I felt like for me, if I went on medication at the time, that I would not be able to process that situation quite the same. Um, and I knew I had, um, when I was growing up, I had been, had a family that I was close to that had had a stillbirth. Um, and they had not really processed that birth for a long time. And it caused a lot of long-term damage for their entire family. Um, Dad spent every day at the cemetery for a couple of years. Mom never went to the cemetery. They didn't have a funeral. It was just kind of a hush-hush thing. Um, it was very uncomfortable for everyone because it just was not talked about. And so I felt like I want to feel the good and I want to feel the bad. I want to know what it feels like. I, I need to know these feelings so I'll know that I've processed this fully at some point in time. Again, it wasn't easy, of course, but I did. And then the thing that um, did help was allowing myself to grieve through all of this. Um, and it was not something that I think I would have done on my own, but that my husband was very supportive and wanting me to grieve and wanting me to go ahead and grieve immediately and not wait and just um, hold on to that pain for a very long time. Um, the pain of losing a baby like that is one that you will never, ever forget, but it does change and it changes to be good memories. It changes to be helpful memories in a lot of different ways. And I know for someone who hasn't gone through that or has recently gone through that, that sounds weird. It sounds like that's impossible, but it truly does. So do I think about Andrew frequently? Yes, I do. Um, probably almost every day. I still think about Andrew, but very rarely are there tears. Occasionally there are. Occasionally their heart is still hard feelings, hard thoughts. Um, but um, generally it's just sweet thoughts and sweet little thoughts that go through and that I'm okay with, that I know that that's what was supposed to happen. 
Um, again, like I said, the, the nurses, you know, one time, one time, right before discharge, kind of like a last minute thought, oh, do we, should we get you some um, medication? Um, but never once was there a discussion of, um, do you want some counseling? You know, you could even get counseling online. There's support groups. They kind of did say, oh, well, we have a lost support group. We could see if we could find the pamphlet on that. But it was not like they thought about that ahead of time and then had done the um, investigation ahead of time. Um, and so in having the support, like I said, that my husband wanted for me, um, we decided to go ahead and have a funeral for Andrew. And I just thought, okay, there'll just be a couple people there, our family. Um, that would be about it. But it grew <laughs> much more than I was anticipating. And at first, that was a hard thing for me. I did not want it to grow because kind of that made it feel real. Um, you know, if all these people are coming in town, like it's a real funeral, it was real. But then as it grew and I realized, oh, yeah, this does need to feel real in this way, too. OK, I get it. So um, as my body was still miserably bruised, like I said, um, and just uncomfortable and I could hardly even bend over. I could hardly even walk. It was terrible. Um, we had a funeral and we planned that funeral with our pastor, with our church, and we were able to grieve appropriately and, and lay our baby to rest. We had awesome support. Like I said, um, even from the community, such as um, the funeral home had a policy actually that they had had in place that they would do all um, baby or children's deaths for cost. No additional fees whatsoever, just strictly for cost. And so that was a huge blessing because otherwise that would have been overwhelming. And the community came through and started, um, you know, uh, funds and that we were able to, they were, all of the funeral was completely paid for. And all of our medical fees were completely paid for by funds from the community and from family and other people giving, which was a huge relief. And so uh, we got, our family had for a long time, due to genealogy reasons, enjoyed visiting um, many, many cemeteries. Sounds kind of funny. My husband and I had actually had dates in cemeteries, um, but it was all genealogy related stuff. Um, we had many, many picnics in cemeteries because guess what? Nobody in the cemetery cares if kids are running all around, if it's just you. And, you know, it's quiet, uh, quiet, beautiful place. And mom and dad can do some quiet genealogy while the kids are eating their picnic and we can move on. Um, so we've done that many times. So we were familiar with cemeteries and cemeteries were a comfortable place for us. So we um, laid him to rest and, and we were able to get a gravestone. Our church that was there um, has their own cemetery and um, no babies had been um buried in that cemetery since the seventies. So it had been a very long time, um, but they were very supportive. And of course they just said, yeah, you can bury him wherever you want. So we chose to bury him in the baby section of the cemetery. Most of those babies had been from around 1900 to 1920, but um, he was one of the, so he's the most recent baby that's buried there. Um, and his gravestone, um, we had seen many, many times in all these cemeteries that so many of the children and babies would have a lamb on the gravestone. So the top of his gravestone has a lamb on it and it has his name, which um, we followed the same naming pattern that we had named chosen for our other children and has his birthday. And then on the back, it has the Bible verse um, that goes with to God be the glory because that became our theme 
for Andrew um, for many different reasons. It's kind of hard to explain, but there was a lot that went along with Andrew's birth and our loss of Andrew that went with the song To God Be the Glory. So we chose to put that on the back of his gravestone and it's there still. Uh, of course. Um, so we've been able to go back and visit a couple times, which has been very healing and very helpful um, in order just to go back and have those moments of allowing myself to sit down and just cry, just sit there and cry and be okay. And then I get up and I'm good to go um, still. Uh, and I know that uh, it's been comforting to know that his grave is being cared for by people that I still love in that community and that people who um, the older people that were around us that have since passed away or some that even passed away right as we were right before we left that those graves are being cared for this and my baby's be- grave is being cared for just the same. And then because he was buried there, some more attention has been given to that baby section for those other babies that have been um, died years before some of the, those um, graves had not been marked well and they've gone back because of, the re-understanding of babies being um, buried in the area, they went back and actually made new grave markers for some of those other baby graves. So anyway, that was important to us that way. Um, so yeah, we moved so shortly thereafter. Um, and we, um, it was two days after his funeral that we told our church that we were moving. It was kind of a hard thing to tell them, thank you for all your support. And yeah, by the way, we're moving. In a few weeks at the same time um they had become our family our local family they had become very very important people to us so it was not an easy thing to move in that situation and not at all easy to move at that time as well so we moved across the country when i still my vision was still wonky and we had to move two vehicles so i drove um less than four weeks after we'd had um the baby um driving and getting everything packed up and moving across the country um, to a whole new place. Again, once again, moving around the time of a baby's birth, which we had done already uh, twice. Uh, So that was rough. Um, And I just, I don't want to say I didn't have time for postpartum depression. I was depressed, but I didn't have time to think about it. Cause by then I had five baby, five little kids and I was a homeschooling mama. And, um, again, like I said, I am so grateful that my husband kind of made me take the time to deal with the, um, the, uh, sadness, you know, the loss quickly. Um, and to be able to have at least to some degree, be able to function that. And he was understanding anytime that I struggled with that loss over the next long time and still is, um, and was able to help with that. That was a huge piece for me. And, but it was so hard when I moved and then people are like, how many babies do you, how many kids do you have? Or, you know, how do you explain? Okay. We have five, but six, but you know, and it wasn't just us explaining at this point, but then our kids were old enough. Some of our kids were old enough to be able to feel like they wanted to explain that. And then, of course, that makes not only me uncomfortable, but that makes everybody around me uncomfortable. And I'm trying to deal with all that. So that was uh, a different and difficult situation. But I think it's part of my postpartum depression, just dealing with it. Um, Did not think about the fact that I could get pregnant again quickly because I was not nursing that time. And so, I mean, you can people can get pregnant quickly anyway. But for me, I knew every time 
I would get pregnant within a month of quitting nursing. It's just what happened every single time. Um, but because I didn't nurse, it, I, again, I think I just didn't stop, t- stop to take the time to think, oh, yeah, huh, this could happen. Um, I did go to the uh, my new OBGYN when I got there after, I think it's probably like eight weeks postpartum at this point in time. So my first appointment after having left the hospital was eight weeks out. Nobody had checked on me once since then medically. And um, she's like, are you doing okay? And, you know, once again, yeah, I'm doing okay, but not a very specific, you know, questioning. Um, But I do think that around that time, things started changing a little bit, not just for me, but I think the medical community as a whole started um, waking up a little bit more right around then. So that would have been 2015. Um, I think the medical community as a whole, there was just more discussion about um, some medical uh, mental health issues, as well as specifically postpartum depression and realize, uh, being willing to admit that this is a real thing. And this really happens to most women on some level. Um, so I got pregnant again quickly and very, very quickly. And so I was due, um, just over a a year later after that loss, he, I had lost him at the very end of July and then the next one was due early August. Um, so start again and it was a emotional, this was an another emotional roller coaster. So I'm still dealing with the postpartum depression, the stress from having lost the baby, the stress from moving, moving into another small house that was miserable with five kids. And then uh, my husband with a new job that was much more stressful. And um, then the new doctor was happy to see me, but she wanted me to see a high risk doctor because of my um, history at this point in time, because now they were never sure if that was actually a preeclampsia, eclampsia event, or was the seizure because I'd lost so much blood. They never were able to figure that out. So they just kind of went off of it. Was probably post. Uh, it was probably was preeclampsia, although they really didn't have anything to prove that. Um, and so the new doctor was like, "Oh no, we can't do a VBAC because you've already had two C sections now." Well. Fine. And she was, it was not my doctor. That was the high risk doctor. And she was not easy to get along with, to say the least. So um, I said, well, fine. I'll have this baby at home and then bring her the baby in later. If that's what I have to do. And they said, well, in Kentucky, home births are illegal, which they are in Kentucky. So yeah, some people actually do them, but they are actually illegal in, in Kentucky. But the, my doctor was in Illinois, was in Indiana. And I'm like, I'll find somebody up here and have my baby up here. Fine. At their house. And then I'll do it. I was like, I don't care. I'm not doing a C-section. Look, I have had, I have had two C-sections and both of my C-sections have been very traumatic experiences because they were both my extremely stressful deliveries. Um, I just can't emotionally do this. Um, so thankfully she actually went back and looked at the hospital policy, which she had helped write go figure this and goes, Oh, by the way, actually it's not after one, um, after one C-section, you can have a C-section after two, or you can have a V-back after two C-sections, but no more. I'm like, well, that's not a problem for me because I've only had two C-sections. Why are we even discussing that? You helped write this policy. What in the world? Okay, fine. So we move on. Right. Um, and, they gave me problem after problem. But then finally, my doctor was like, enough. My doctor was like, I'm supportive of this. 
And they're like, well, she's going to be barely a year out from the last C-section. And she's like, okay, no problem. That um, ACOG supports completely the backs at that point in time. No problem, whatever. So um, once again, we were getting ready to move. It was all about the moving around the baby time, right? How in the world this happens? But we finally had found a house that we wanted to buy there. And so we thought, okay, this will be great. We have the house. Um, we're going to be able to get the keys a month before I'm due, a little over a month before I'm due. Excellent. No problems. Um, actually, it was like six weeks before I was due. Okay, we're like six weeks. We're great, you know? And then um, I kind of got a little sick, and then my husband got sick, and then my mom came into town because she was going to help us with the move. And then I started getting high blood pressure. And they asked me to do a 24-hour protein urine test. And I did. And I turned in and went home. And three days later, my doctor calls me. And she's like, have you had that baby yet? And I'm like, no. Hello, you're my doctor. She says, "Um, I've been on vacation. Your protein is through the roof. And why haven't you? What? I'm like, nobody's called me and told me. She goes, what in the world? Come to find out the high-risk doctor who had those results, he was just sitting on his desk and he had not ever looked at them somehow. So um, she did not know until she got back. And so she said, you need to come in. I said, my husband has the flu today. Are you kidding me? I feel okay. I don't feel great, but I'll take it easy. I promise. And I'll watch my blood pressure. Well, later that day, I did start feeling not so good. And my husband started feeling better. So decided, okay, I think we better go get checked out. Got there. Yeah, my blood pressure was not good. Things were not so great. And I started having contractions. This was six weeks early. I had never had contractions over the baby early. And just, just realized this is the time to have that baby. Clearly, I'm having preeclampsia with this baby again. And with my latest issue of having lost a baby, uh, we don't want to go down that road again, of course, just in case that was related to the same situation. Um, not at all seeming like that, but just in case. Um, and I'm in labor, clearly having definite contractions. But they started me on magnesium for because of the high blood pressure and the preeclampsia, which guess what magnesium does? It slows down contractions. So what I had been used to having very quick labors for the last four babies that I had had naturally that was a very long and frustrating labor because it just wasn't happening, wasn't going anywhere. But my doctor, again, was super supportive and amazing. And she's like, and I finally said, let's just get this over with. Let's just go to a C-section. And she said, no, you want to have a VBAC. Let's do this. Come on, you can do this. And I was like, I have never had a doctor say, let's VBAC. Like, what? Okay. And she's like, yeah, I'll give you some Pitocin. Never before had I ever had a doctor say you could have some Pitocin with a VBAC, especially 11 months after my last C-section. She said, no, no, it's okay. She said, we're here in the hospital. If we need to do an emergency C-section, we're supplied to do that. Why not? She said, we can just do a little Pitocin. We won't do much because you won't need much. I promise. Okay. So she barely started that. She goes, you know what? While we're at it, let's give you a spinal. I'm like, I have had natural births. You're kidding me. She said, no, no, no. Let's just try this. Okay. Well, guess what? They gave me the spinal. They started the Pitocin. I don't even know if the Pitocin got in my system. And that baby was born quickly. Like she barely was able to catch the baby. <laughs> Caleb likes to tell Libby 
Um, you spit out like a watermelon seed because you came out so fast when that happened. So she did, was born. So she was born um, just at 11 months after my C-section that was before her. And then we got the keys for our house 15 minutes after she was born. So <laughs> chaos to say the least. I mean, you can imagine. Um, then um, I kept having eclampsia issues, preeclampsia issues, even after. Somehow I had never been told that you can have post-eclampsia. It's not like you're having um, the seizure, but you're still having all the symptoms because the blood vessels that are supposed to close in your liver just don't finish closing after you have the baby sometimes. And I'd never had that before. And again, like I said, now then at this point, I'm starting to panic because I start thinking with the last baby, they never even checked my lab work after I had that baby. I left the hospital an hour, a day and a half after, didn't have lab work checked until eight weeks. I could have passed, I could have died from having eclampsia issues and nobody had ever looked at it or thought about it between now and then. But they made me stay in the hospital for a week after having her because everything did not want to finish off. And my um, lab work and my um, blood pressure were not going completely back to normal, which in some respects was good because I could stay close to my baby because she was six weeks early. So she was still in the NICU and I was able this time to not just, okay, you've had a baby, she's in the NICU, go home. No, this time I could stay and be there in the same hospital with her. Um, and so in some respects, that was nice. Because then also, I could relax, sort of. As, if, as much as a nurse in a hospital can relax. Not a whole lot. But I was able to, I, I couldn't do anything. Which for me was probably good. Because I think I would have been doing way too much at that point in time. So I just had to sit there in a hospital room. And then the only thing I could do possibly was to get up and go see my baby. Awesome. I can handle that. So um, she was in the hospital for two weeks. I was in the hospital for one week. Um, And while I was in the hospital for one week, my husband and my mom and uh, several friends moved all of us completely. And I just managed things from the phone and managed, okay, where do you want this? Uh... Somewhere? I have no idea. Wherever you want to put it. I don't care. Um, I got home from the hospital and they were doing great, but they were still, you know, all sorts of furniture in different places and things were just not how they needed to be at all. And they were trying to get unpacked, but the house was not unpacked because we still did not have quite at all the support system that we had had in in our last um, location. We'd only been there less than a year, so we had started making friends. And we had friends who did help us move, but not the level of support system to help us unpack and get, you know, all settled in as much as we would have had in a previous location. So that was a little tough. So trying, coming home from the hospital with my baby still in the hospital for another week to a disaster of a house that seemed overwhelming to five kids. My mom was there, which was awesome and so supportive. And my husband was being as supportive as he possibly could going back and forth to work. But it wasn't easy. And um, they, this, though, was the first time that they actually said, okay, gave you a piece of paper and said, fill out this piece of paper about postpartum depression. You know, but how honestly do you want to fill out that piece of paper? I mean, that's kind of a hard thing when they're like, how often have you, have, have you thought, have any thoughts of, you know, harming yourself or others? Really? I mean, 
when you just had a baby, you are not going to admit to that, even if you do feel it most of the time, because, you know, if you have that, they're going to take your baby away in your own mind, at least, I think to some degree. <laughs> um, it was so um, I did not specifically um, go on anything or take it or go on or have any specific counseling. Um, I think that at that point, it probably wouldn't have hurt for me for sure to have some counseling of some sort, uh, just because trying to figure out how to process having a rainbow baby again after having had the last loss. Um, somewhere in the, between my loss and somewhere in there probably would have been good for me to just to be able to process and talk through all that because it took me a very long time to be able to put all this into words, years to be able to figure out how to explain the feelings that I was having at that time. The overwhelm, the stress, the uh, anxiety, pushing myself and my body far more than I should have um, just because I felt like I needed to, but I probably should have just chilled with it and gone with it. Um, so anyway, after two weeks, able to bring Elizabeth home and Elizabeth or Libby, as we call her, um, did really well. And then after her decided I have got to stop this. I I need to take a break from having babies. <laughs> time to take a break and let my body heal. My body showed this time it can't do this for, for like this forever. So, um, for the first time ever, decided to use an I have an IUD placed and spent some time, a uh, lot of time, working on losing some weight. Lost quite a bit of weight. Got down to a weight goal that I was okay with, and said okay time to, uh, by this point in time, realize I did not like the IUD. Um, it was causing issues and I felt very uncomfortable with it. Um, and just not a good option for me by any means. Um, and hadn't really thought through the, uh, I, I had known that there were some hormones involved in it, but the hormones that were involved in it, um, m- most IUDs that are used these year, these days do have hormones, even though they don't necessarily explain that so well to you always. Um, and the hormones were definitely affecting me and it was not a good way. Um, and I think that was making, so that was adding to any of the postpartum depression that I was having. The hormones that are involved in a lot of um, contraception definitely can cause um, some po- uh, depression issues. So that, it, um, you know, balancing the need and desires for the contraception with balancing also knowing that those hormones have some of those effects is something that um, probably needs to be taken into account more than it has been for a long time. Definitely not something that doctors really spend a lot of time talking about. Um, So finally decided to have that removed and then be okay with getting pregnant if I got pregnant again. Um, Just let that leave that up to whatever God had for us and went for a few months and didn't get pregnant, but then I got pregnant. And, um, then went in for an ultrasound and they said, well, this baby's kind of laying low, like low, you know, that's not usually a good thing, but baby has a heartbeat and it's kind of slow, but it's okay. You know, let's see. So then a week later, they wanted to do another ultrasound and baby's heartbeat was still there, but slower even. And baby had not gone moved up, which is what they needed. Anyway. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, um, I miscarried that baby. Um, and then, um, but well, I, the baby stopped having a heartbeat, but I did not miscarry 
actively. And then they did miscarry and I did miscarry. So it was almost a month and I still hadn't miscarried. And I had never, even through my other miscarriages, three miscarriages before, I'd never had to have a DNC. I'd always naturally miscarried. And that was very defeating to me because I was like, I've always done this myself naturally and this is not okay. But finally agreed that I need to go ahead and have a DNC because it had been almost a month and the baby had not miscarried. And went ahead and um, had a DNC and then went on about life, right? But about three months later, things just didn't feel right. And I thought, man, am I pregnant again? Like, it's a little early. I don't think, like, does it add up? I shouldn't be pregnant by anything. But I'm not taking, you know, anything to keep me from getting pregnant. So I guess it's possible. So checked and I had a positive pregnancy test. And I was like, it still doesn't, something doesn't feel right. So anyway, got in with my doctor and she said, well, let's get you an ultrasound. And so we did an ultrasound and then the ultrasound tech would not say anything. And she's just like, let me get your doctor. And then after, over the next few, over the next several days, we finally figured out that I had what was called an increta. Um, what it was, was that the baby's um, placenta had grown through my C-section scar and was implanting on the outside of my uterus and elsewhere in my body. They did not know the extent of that because they really have no way of testing that at that point in time after a loss. If you're still pregnant, they can because they can trace the, um, there's viable tissue that's pumping blood through it. But once you've lost the baby, that tissue is no longer um pumping blood through it, but it can still grow. The tissue still continues to expand almost like it's a tumor. It's very odd. Um, and so going on through all this, they tried to, we tried several different things. Um, and they honestly said that there was no research that they could find on a first trimester loss with this type of thing. Um, they had a little bit of research on someone who had an abortion one time, but it was different experience because it was later. And then they also had lots of people who had live births but they had none for a first, they could not find any research articles anywhere for a first trimester loss with an increta. So the doctor said, well, we really don't know what to do. Um, she said, you know, we could try chemotherapy, but is that going to do anything? She said, in the chance of you getting, if you get pregnant again, another increta possible. She said, we don't know how far it's attached. If it's attached to other organs or what's going on with that, we can't tell that. We could go in and try to clean things up, but then the chance of you getting another one again is really rough. So um, long story short, I ended up needing to have a hysterectomy, um, which again was a very emotional thing because my last baby was a loss. And so that was a very harsh thing. But like I said, in the beginning, we had our six and God had done exactly what he needed to do for our six. And when we were first starting out, we said, okay, we're going to let God have the say of this. And God had to say it. It was such a clear open, such a clear closing to that part of our lives. When God said, that is it, you're done. And so went ahead and did that. And it was a good thing um, that I had the hysterectomy because um, the placental tissue had been already starting to attach to my bladder. Um, and thankfully they did not have to do, um, anything to the bladder other than cleaning the outside of the bladder. It took two surgeons. It was a very detailed surgery. It took a lot longer than they expected to try to get all that tissue because they had to get all of it in order to be able to make it. Cause basically it had been like a first trimester pregnancy 
for six months straight. All the nausea that went along with it, all the everything, the, the exhaustion, all that was there because the placental tissue is what causes that. And it had already been, it had been there for six whole months. Um, you know, they thought they got it in the DNC, but they couldn't because it was in the wall. And so that was not something that they could have known because they didn't know at that point in time that it was like that. It was a very amazing way that they found it just by using a scope that they were able to get a tiny little bitty glimpse of one spot. It's one of these things that happens so rarely that it's not something they just catch. And there's really not a good way to diagnose it. It was a really kind of rough situation. But um, like I said, kind of a hard ending for my life, for my, you know, fertility life, I guess you could say. Um, But, and I won't say that every so often I still go, I wish I could have had another one. I wish I had another, you know, I wish I'd been able to end that part of my life on a happy side somewhat, you know? Um, And yes, I went through postpartum depression with that baby because I knew that was the end. I knew there was nothing else for having babies after that. And that was a hard, because I think at that point, I finally let it all come crashing down. And so kind of the whole postpartum wow, um, I think that would have been my postpartum wow moment. Not really a moment, but just my postpartum wow time more of realizing this is my whole postpartum (laughs) uh, depression moment. My whole postpartum just struggle and not so much really depression, somewhat depression, but probably more postpartum anxiety. Because I had never really dealt with anxiety in my life very much at all until right around that time. And then just total strange, erratic moments of just like riding in the car and just extreme anxiety, just building up that I just could not even know how to deal with. And I know that it was related to that. I I totally know it was related to that. But it was not something that the doctors ever mentioned as postpartum anxiety piece. Uh, you know, they've mentioned, do you want, you know, do you need to have something for depression? But never was the anxiety piece mentioned. Um, I noticed that too, because yeah, I think when when going back and thinking of, of my situation, when I talk to my doctor, I feel like the anxiety is mm-hmm. what hit first. And that's what triggered the depression. Yeah. And I just didn't know how to deal with it. And so trying to deal with just the um naturally with trying okay so i'll just use um different uh essential oils and discovered that some of that did help just to keep myself a little more (laughs) calm and uh, under control but it just took time it really just took time and learning to be able to accept okay this is anxiety okay i can i can you know it's anxiety and just to be able to accept the fact that it was a normal thing and that it was an okay, normal thing to feel. And then I could process it without, you know, at first when it was just like, what's wrong with me? I couldn't process it when I was just worried about what is wrong with me? Am I going crazy kind of feeling? But once I realized, oh, no, 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 this is a normal piece of where I am. Okay. I was, you know, I was, I was able to process it that way for myself. Uh, but it took, a, it took me probably a year and a half to be able to really get through all of that uh, postpartum anxiety. Uh, piece of that and then of course it come through that postpartum anxiety and then oh okay great guess what now you're going through perimenopause fun 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 times right so just some of that early uh early anxiety that can go along with that as well so sometimes that can cross over uh the 
post, I have, you know, lots of friends now that I'm, you know, in my early forties, um, lots of friends who've had babies in their forties at this point in time. And all of them are like, what's baby time versus what's early menopause parent, you know, parent, and just talking about a lot of the anxieties that can kind of be crossover with that. And a lot of the other issues that can go with that. So, um, kind of interesting. And I feel like I experienced a little bit of that because I was almost 40 with that. And, um, it was, but it was again, something that wasn't really talked about very much. And then even after I had that baby, I only saw my doctor twice, I think after that. And then I moved again, once again moved and um that was where the end that ended up so that's my long long story <laughs> i got a word Jeff. well and i i yeah you did and i i appreciate you going through and reliving all of that again because i can't i i can't imagine putting two and two together um but i i appreciate you doing that and spending uh, as much time explaining all of that. So in dealing with like, once you realized all that anxiety and depression had caught up with you, what were your top three, like coping strategies? I know you mentioned essential oils was one. Was there any others that you tried that you thought were helpful? Uh, but, but mostly just essential oils, just basically realizing, oh, this is anxiety. And not just what is this feeling that I'm feeling? <sighs> like, I did not, ex I did not recognize it as anxiety because I'd never felt that way. So just um, recognizing it for what it was, being willing to recognize it for what it was and being willing to just take deep breaths and let it pass. Um, and um, letting my, listening to my husband, that's another crazy thing. <laughs> Sounds so simple, but you know, he can be just, oh, just calm down. But sometimes just to realize Okay, yeah, just, calm, just take a brief breath. Sometimes maybe he doesn't say it quite as calmly to calm down as I would like. He can be a little abrupt with that. But if I can process it for just a minute, yes, it's helpful. Um, and then to be able to have conversations with him about, look, this anxiety that I'm feeling, and just to be able to explain to him, this anxiety I'm feeling, it's anxiety and I'm, I can't control it. And for him to be able to understand the fact that I really couldn't control it, and to understand that the people around me could understand that I really couldn't exactly control it, but that they could just love me through it. That was helpful. So. Yeah. And I feel like having those, those conversations that helped me too, was having those conversations with my husbands of just being honest of like, look, it's a stage mm -hmm. we're in right now. I know I'm not who I used to be and I'm not saying this is my new normal. I'm just saying this mm -hmm. is right now. And do what you want with that. But I think having those conversations and just getting it out in the open was more beneficial than I had realized. And I think for him, it was hard because I wasn't the strong, independent woman that I, you know, always had been. And uh, he was used to me sometimes leading the way a little too much, probably. And so when I wasn't able to do that, um, it was hard for him to figure out how to take that control without making me feel like I'd lost control. <laughs> so that it was, it was a bit more of a challenge in that respect. Um, not that it's always perfect still, but you know, that's just life. Right. And like you said, phases, I like, well, I like sure. what you said and, specifically about yeah. this is where I am right now. And I think understanding, and this is a part of parenting, but it's not just in parenting. It's for us as moms too, understanding that there are phases. There are, everything has its own phase. And that's kind of become one of my mantras as a mom. Oh, it's a new phase. 
Um, you know, potty training, guess what you've got coming up? <laughs> a new phase, potty training. But every part of their life, now I have teenagers. Guess what? It's a phase. Um, so just it's a phase and it's going to come and it's going to go. It's not going to be there for forever. Um, and if it lasts too long, then there may be ways that you can need to get some help and some respect, but um, that some things just have their time and that that's okay. I think that's a big piece. So would you say, and that was my last question for you uh, today was uh, now going what you've been through and coming where you are today. Uh, what are some pieces of advice that you would give your pre-mom self? Well, one thing that I've been asked over and over is if you would do it, would you do it all again? Yeah, I wouldn't change a bit of it. I know that sounds crazy. Um, I wouldn't change it. I can't imagine changing it. I can't imagine anything that I could or would change at all. Um, to be um, another piece of this that's interesting now <laughs> that kind of adds to it is that at this point in my life now, I am a midwife's assistant as well. Um, so seeing how she helps moms and seeing the things that I did, I would take care of myself a little bit, a lot better early on, a lot better focus on my diet early on, a lot better, not just to be more healthy, but to feed myself and to feed my baby and to think of it as, okay, I'm feeding my baby <laughs> right off the bat. Um, and then I'm feeding my baby while my baby's still inside of me. And then I'm feeding my baby outside of me too. And so that the, the quality of nutrients that I'm putting my baby into myself is what's cause is helping that. And that it will also feed my baby if I can have a good mentality about things at the same time too. Um, so, um, taking care of myself with nutrition and maybe supplements if that's necessary and taking time to exercise, not just for the, not for the necessarily weight management issues of it, but for just the mental health side of that as well. Um, and taking the time for, I, I really don't like the term me time. Um, it's just kind of, I don't, there's a part of me that I just don't like that term, but I feel like the, um, me time in the form of your mental health time, um, <laughs> uh, not me time is, oh, this is my, just, I have to have this time, but the time to take care of yourself in other ways. Um, and that kind of a piece. So that would be probably my big advice that way, as well as to accept what things still are and just keep going still to some degree. Don't give up. It's going to get better. Just breathe through it and keep going and it will get better, but give yourself grace along the way. Yeah. And it's funny is that you just your last two sentences, it was like the, the, the worst sentence and then the best sentence followed because everyone and his brother would tell me it gets better, it gets better. And both my husband and I, after a while, just really started hating that phrase because we just kept hearing it so often. And yet it didn't seem like it was getting better. Well, we weren't extending grace to ourselves in our situation. And now looking back, it's like, okay, yeah, those two, I feel like those two sentences go hand in hand. But would you say every postpartum? Experience. I would ask you, so would you say a year out? Would you say it does get better in some ways? Yeah, I do. It does. Yes, yes. And I've and I've admitted right. to that. Well, yeah, I mean, like saying we don't like to hear that. Like, I know I just, yeah, I, we don't like to hear that. But and I, that's probably one of the things that my husband has said through the times when I didn't like to him. It'll get better. <sighs> really? It doesn't feel like that. But um, 
That does very little for me right, right now. <laughs> but at the same time, it does. And so finally, I've learned as a mom, maybe just some years of experience to say, you are right. Okay. Just give me a minute to. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. But, you know, it does get better. And I think that that's one thing that helps. The more you've, if you've had other babies, more than one, you can see, yes, it's different. But you can also still start seeing, oh, these things that I'm dealing with now, I probably won't be dealing with in three, six, 12 months. Certainly not in five years, not the same way I'm dealing with them now. Life will be different. And um, it just seems like it's going to be forever at that point in time. And it certainly is not forever. And it's not going to be forever for good or for bad. Because sometimes it's the good things that aren't going to be there in five years. The little baby cuddles and the cute little feet and the, you know, that's all different. That's missing when they're like <clears throat> bigger than me are the bigger than I am now, you know, the 12 and a half year old that's towering over me who used to have the cutest little feet <laughs> that are huge now. So, um, yeah, it all changes, but it is so hard in that moment to, in the, not just that moment, but in those months moments to accept that. So yeah, totally agree. I get that. Very good. Well, thank you. Thanks again, Sarah, for, for your time. And, and to those of you listening, um, I appreciate you hanging on. I will put some resources in the show notes. I know Postpartum International now has a huge database of support for specialty cases such as NICU babies um, and specialty cases, especially for infant loss as well. So if this is something that you think would uh, benefit your situation or your family, please check that out. Um, again, I'll stick that in the show notes. And uh, thanks again, Sarah, for all of your time. And any closing remarks that you have for the listeners? I don't think so. <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Postpartum Wow. If you like what you heard and you'd like to support this podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe and follow me on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow me on my Facebook page at The Postpartum Wow. This way you'll be notified when new episodes are dropped every other Tuesday. Feel free to also leave a review sharing what you liked best, and this will help other listeners know what to expect when checking out this podcast. Until next time, friends, may your messy buns be on point and your coffee stay warm. 